You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. It is with the deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are touring our way through the enchanted castle that is the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, never afraid to explore even the forbidden West Wing if it will help us better understand how these films shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we are ditching our tour guides and climbing the stairs of 1991's Beauty and the Beast. It is the 30th film in the canon and the first animated film ever to be nominated for Best Picture. Joining me to talk about it is a man who uses antlers in all of his decorating and every last inch of him is covered in hair, Michael Farmer. Uh, you know, it's more true than ever. My beard is getting uh, outrageous because I can't go anywhere <laughs> to have it cut. How you doing, Josh? <laughs> I'm doing well, and I imagined that it was quite true as I was uh, as I was picking out that quote for you. I told Victoria that uh, in a few weeks I'm going to look like the cover to Paul Simon's first album. You know, he's got that <laughs> giant hood on, made yes. of fur. <laughs> so, Michael, today we have a special guest, and I think you're going to introduce her. Yeah, we're joined by Kate Henriksen, who I met when the Christian Humanist Podcast did our one and only live episode at Dork College. Uh, and she uh, she is the director of the Sioux Center Arts uh, there in Sioux Center, Iowa. Thanks for coming on the show, Kate. Thank you for having me. And Kate uh, was in, she played Belle in a production of Beauty and the Beast there at Sioux Center. And so I, I don't know that I know anyone who loves this movie more than she did. So I figured she was the right person to have on. Yeah, I, I feel like it's an honor to have you. I feel like you're going to know the inside and outside of this movie better than anyone. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things to talk about in this movie. Um, obviously, uh, it's it's a it's an extremely popular one, and so um, I don't know if you guys have a jumping-off point that you wanted to to start on. Uh, maybe just start by acknowledging. I, I assume we all agree that it deserves that popularity. Like this is this is a fantastically popular movie that is fantastically popular because it's really really good. I would heartily agree with that. <laughs> I think it's probably my favorite of all of the Disney princess movies by far. Yeah, I think it does an excellent job of of. I mean, it's it's an excellent movie. It was it was hard to watch it critically even because partly because of that because of how good it is and and also i think because of how like um it does that movie trick that um that the great movies do where where you you feel like you're part of it and so you don't really want to stop and question anything and so there are some things in here that you could nitpick and question but um only if you're if you're trying to watch it with a super critical eye if you just like kind of go in and are actually enjoying and experiencing the movie i don't think you would even notice it you know 
<laughs> well, I mean, it, it's come under some flack lately because of its supposed uh, Stockholm syndrome. Yes, uh, I wonder if you're going to talk about that. <laughs> I, I almost think we have to because because yeah. I, I feel like people people all over the world now, when they talk about Beauty and the Beast, have to mention that um, that that she's kept prisoner and it's a it's an abusive relationship and all that. And I, you know, I, I thought about that while I was watching it, and I'm not sure I really believe that. It, it, it certainly certainly he keeps her there at first, but. It seems that it's not too long that she's there before she wants to be there. Maybe that's just what Stockholm Syndrome is. I don't know. Maybe I'm making excuses for an abusive relationship. I don't think you are. I think you're on the right track with this one. Like, I believe we've talked about this in some of our prior episodes, too. There, there seems to be this world of... Um, of Disney criticism of especially the popular princess films um, where it's like they they're criticizing more the plot synopsis than the movie itself, you know? And so if you read the plot synopsis, then yeah, it looks like an abusive relationship. But if you watch the movie, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see it in that way at all. Yeah. I, you know, I've heard that criticism both uh, personally from people that I know and also in pop culture references. I think there's an episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, actually, where uh, a character puts on a show of Beauty and the Beast. And uh, Kimmy, who is an actual Stockholm Syndrome, or she's, you know, she was in a bunker for much of her life and held captive by a cult leader. And so she actually participated in a real Stockholm Syndrome sort of episode and uh, so she criticizes Beauty and the Beast as being uh, representative of Stockholm Syndrome. But I I disagree, um, I think, for a few reasons. Uh, one would be, I guess the primary one would be, like you said, she's not there for very long before she starts to like it. Um, I mean, the Beast is not kind to her initially, but the entire rest of the castle is because they want her there to break the spell. Uh but as for her relationship with the Beast, she doesn't really start to fall for him until after he has shown some change, right? So, you know, he uh, he's unkind, he's unkind, he's unkind, culminating in that little, uh, their fight in the West Wing when he scares her and she runs away. But then he comes after her and saves her from the wolves. And it's that act of kindness that then makes her start to you know, then she rescues him, brings it back to the castle. And that's when she starts to kind of see a side of him that she hadn't seen before. So I don't feel like it's Stockholm Syndrome at all. I feel like it is um, a story about uh, seeing through sort of the exterior of a person to, um, to be able to see goodness that lies beneath that. And also the goodness in Belle then bringing out the goodness in the Beast. Which you could certainly see how language like that could be used to justify an abusive relationship, even if this movie isn't necessarily uh, a presentation of an abusive relationship. I mean, you could certainly see how somebody could use the kind of structure of this movie to to justify staying with someone who is who does beat them or is, is cruel to them in, in that way. But yeah, I I, I, I think it is is watching rather inhospitably uh, this movie to, to say that that's what's going on in the movie itself. And also at the same time, she doesn't just ta- she doesn't ever just take the abuse. Like when she comes back to the castle with him, um, you know, and she's tending to his wounds, she stands up for herself right away. He says, "This was your fault. You know, you shouldn't have run away." And and she says, "Well, you should learn to control your temper." And he kind of has no response to that and realizes, "Oh, she has a point." 
you know, so she doesn't, she doesn't take it lying down at all. She very much stands up for herself. And yeah, that would be my take on it. I don't think she takes any abuse from him. (laughs) And she's very much in in that sense, in that uh, post aerial spunky Mm -hmm. princess mode that we're going to get a lot of in the next 10 movies or so from, from this uh, podcast. Yeah. But I think it's a really, it's a really vital scene for the whole movie. Like I think it is a, a turning point in the story and it's what makes the story really work uh, is the fact that um, he, he has done this act of kindness for her. Um, but I think uh, there's a, there's a moment there where they finally actually see each other and seeing the real person is such a, a theme in this movie. So I'm sure we'll talk about it some more, but um, like he, he sees her as, as this person because she's got this personality that comes out the the feistiness um but she also sees him as more than a beast in that moment because he's actually in pain and so that um brings some tenderness out of her as well so i think that that scene is really the i don't know it's 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 a really important part in the movie mm-hmm. as well as the song following it where she sings there's something there i see something there that wasn't there before that's my favorite song in this movie, and it always has been. I just, I, I think that's such a pretty song. It's beautiful. <laughs> it was one of my favorites too. Although I just noticed this time, and I'm sure Kate, you know this because you've, you've sung it on stage so many times, but I just noticed that um, it it reuses some of the melody from Bell. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which which shows you how dumb I am that I've been watching this movie <laughs> since 1991 and just realized that. <laughs> Two days ago no, or whatever. No, not at all. I mean, that's one of the beauties of the orchestration, I think, of, of the musicals is how well they use those recurring themes um, to draw out a point. So, you know, that song was in, we had that in the opening sequence, and then we have it again in this moment. And I think maybe they're trying to kind of subconsciously draw our attention to the fact that this is the first time the castle is starting to feel like home to her, mm-hmm. like a place that she could be at home because it's the same song that was in our village. And they do the same thing with um, the tune uh, that is in the very opening of the show. It's that, you know, it's just those notes. Um, dun, 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 dun. Um, you hear those strains in the opening of the show, and then you hear it again during the transformation sequence at the end. Hmm. So they do a lot of that where they reuse a song um, to draw out a point in the, in the story. And I don't, I don't know if that's typical for for these movies. I haven't noticed it before, uh, before Beauty and the Beast. But, I mean, certainly I think Beauty and the Beast, like Little Mermaid, is a Broadway show that comes to cartoons. You know, it, it has the structure of a Broadway show, so it, it makes it very easy to turn it back into a Broadway show after mm-hmm. the movie's a big hit. Um, if you, if you. The, the other movies, the other musicals, even the ones from the 40s and the 50s, they have some great songs, but they're, they're not structured like Broadway shows the right. way this is in Little Mermaid and Lion King and all the other ones we remember from our childhood. Right. Which is yeah. why you see Disney or Broadway productions of Snow White or uh, Cinderella. It's the Rodgers and Hammerstein version. It's never the Disney version that's done. But I do think the orchestration in this this movie is part of what makes it, and and they are performing at a really high level here, um, or it seems to me that they are. Um, I'm not. I'm obviously not a, a 
musical theater critic or nerd or anything, but it just seems like they're really at a high level here where they're where they are. They're borrowing these these refrains from from each other, and I think it really it, it's it it's putting the theme together for us as well. Um, we're getting the character moment in the in the bridge of Belle where she's talking about. Um, this is my favorite part because you'll see um, this is where she meets Prince Charming, but she doesn't recognize that it's him until chapter three. And then you're getting the same, like that same, you know, uh, melody when she's recognizing, oh, I've met this beast, but I haven't really seen him. I don't know that he's Prince Charming yet. Right. Um, and so, like, I, I just think there, there's this beautiful parallel there. Um, and it's almost a, uh, I, I just love that it's in this movie because it's also it's almost it's it's almost training you how to watch a movie well um because it is a it's it's a family movie or a kids movie as some people would say you know and and so you're learning these techniques of oh how to you know the on the rewatching of oh this part plays into this part you know i think it's really beautifully done we should talk more about the music since we're already talking about it and since i mean this is one of the best soundtracks of any animated movie ever i think yeah. Do you want to start on that, uh, the song there that you were, um, you said was your favorite? Something there. Yeah. I, I don't know why I love it so much because it's, it's not the big showstopper. It's not the title track. It's not Be Our Guest. But I find the, I find the melody so beautiful and I like that really everybody gets a chance to sing in it. And, uh, it's, it's a, a kind of montage song that's moving the plot along in a way that some of the other songs are not. Mm-hmm. So I, I've always really loved something there. Yeah, I really love it as well. I, as you were talking about the recurring themes, um, you know, when it goes up to the bit where she's singing new and a bit alarming, it's the same echo of the earlier part where she's reading her book about here's where she meets Prince Charming. And so, and she doesn't even realize that she's actually, this is her prince, but, but the music is showing us that. Yeah, we realize it uh, long before she does because we're we're cued in by what the what the movie is. You know, she doesn't she doesn't have a sense that she's actually living in a fairy tale the way that we do. Yeah, although I wonder how much she does because I wonder if that moment of um, sacrifice at the beginning when uh, when she trades her life for her father's, um, I wonder how much she recognizes at that moment. Of oh I've stepped into another I've stepped into a story I was just singing this I wish song of I wish I was in this bigger story and now I've fallen into it and it's not the story maybe I wanted but um, there's I don't know I, I think there's there's a little bit at least of a glimpse there of she she understands like oh I'm in one of these stories that I read um, even at that moment or at least that maybe that informs her strength or her courage to be able to say no I'm gonna I'll stay take you know if you let him go. And actually, she has in the Broadway version that we performed, um, she has an entire song that she sings right after that moment um, when the beast dro- drops her off in her new bedroom. Uh, in the cartoon, she's just, she's kind of crying on the bed, but in the Broadway version, she sings a song called "Home" uh, that's really beautiful. And one of the lines in it is, uh, "Well, she sings the refrain is, is this home? Is this the place I'm supposed to be happy in?'" And then she says. And to think I complained about that dull provincial town. (laughs) (laughs) She's suddenly realizing, oh, I got what I asked for. I am in one of these stories now, and it's kind of terrifying. (laughs) There's adventure, and then there's adventure, right? Right. (laughs) 
what do they call it? Aesthetic distance when you <laughs> see something beautiful from a distance and a painting of an icy uh, northern landscape, and you can think, "Oh, that looks beautiful." And then when you're actually on an icy northern landscape, it's it's less enchanting. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to tell me. I lived in Minnesota for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like that. And I, I was that song written especially for the. Um, Broadway show because I know there's a song called Human Again that's in the Broadway show that is a deleted cut from the um, movie itself. Yeah, no, there's a, a couple songs that are, I believe, specific to the Broadway show. Uh, and I found this out. <laughs> the way I found this out actually was because I, so when I auditioned for the show, which was actually in, uh, it actually was in Orange City. It's part of their annual Tulip Festival that they do every year. They do a big Broadway musical. And uh, when I auditioned, I had never heard the Broadway musical. I was only familiar with the Disney animated show. And so uh, I got, I was cast, I got this part. And then my director said something about my three ballads that I would be singing. And I was like, my what now? (laughs) (laughs) Because I love musical theater. I love acting. But uh, to be honest, uh, if you know me well, you'll know that singing actually kind of terrifies me, singing in front of people. Uh, and, and so I had thought I'd kind of gotten away a little bit with playing Belle because I thought, well, she just sings that little ditty at the beginning. And then, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. And the duet with the beast. But turns out there's like three whole ballads that she sings at home and um, uh, one called A Change in Me when she comes back uh, to the village. When she leaves the beast to go rescue her father, she sings A Change in Me. Uh, and then the Beast has his own ballad called um, If I Can't Love Her, which is what he sings when she runs away from him. And he's kind of bemoaning and grieving the fact that he has no hope because he can't overcome his own uh, monstrous uh, inclinations enough to to keep her there, basically, to be what she needs him to be. So, yeah, there's a number of really good songs uh, that are only in the Broadway one, I believe, I should say. I'm not 100% sure. but. And yeah. are, are those all Tim Rice songs as well, Kate? You know, I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to check on that. Um, yeah, I, I believe they are, but I'd have to double check. Because, yeah, the, the songs in the movie famously written by Tim Rice, and it's not Howard Ashman because he died. Um, Alan Menken. Is the other uh, is the other songwriter, and they do well, I, they do Aladdin Howard as well, right? Uh, Howard Ashman did work on this one. This is the last one that he worked on. Okay, oh, that's yeah. right, because it's dedicated to him, and it, it says mm-hmm. something about the beast and the dedication. Yeah, so I, yeah, the music is Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, and then I think uh, Tim Rice comes in uh, on on Aladdin. I think. Okay, excuse me. It's okay. It's only because I have Wikipedia open in front of me. <laughs> 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 that's it looks like yeah it looks like alan menken wrote the lyrics at least for home and then yeah i'm not sure yeah. the big the big showstopper is be our guest uh which uh, for most of my childhood disney world used as their tagline uh guys you okay. must have you must have thoughts about be our guest i love it i think it's great <laughs> <laughs> it's a really fun song i feel like i have to make an observation for victoria who um isn't here obviously but she is a musical theater nerd 
And she, she noticed for the first time that when Lumiere um, uh, uh, uses the, the candle putter outer as a, as a hat, that he's doing the dance from uh, Razzle Dazzle from Chicago, which Jerry Orbach uh, played on Broadway. So it's a, it's a nice visual reference to one of his other famous roles. Oh, that's funny. I, I didn't realize that, but that is the moment in the song that I just love that, yeah. you know, course by course. Yeah, that's just, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great song and it must've been, it must've been an enormous amount of fun to uh, animate because there's so much crazy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. It was also a lot of fun to uh, choreograph. Um, oh, we sure. Cause it's, yeah, it's the big number of music. So it was also our biggest number in terms of choreography. And yeah, it was this huge dance number with the entire cast. And I wound up several shoulders high on people, <laughs> which was very exciting by the end of it. But yeah, that was a really fun one. Uh, and yeah, the course by course, we're all doing it like a kick line. What do you call it? A kick line. Uh, oh, one sure. of those can-can lines. <laughs> so yeah, that was a really fun one. That was another one where I thought I had lucked out because in the movie, Belle just sits there the whole time, kind of waving her hands back and forth and watching the desserts go by. <laughs> but of course, I, I did not get to just sit and watch. I ended up having to do these can-can numbers with the whole cast. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm not cut out for musical theater. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like that sequence because it feels um, it feels like a throwback to some of the uh, some of the early early movies have these kind of weird abstract musical sequences and I, I guess I'm thinking of Pink Elephants on Parade from Dumbo but also some of the package films from the 40s have these have these neat um, non uh, narrative song sequences and I, I feel like be our guest starts off as something that makes a fair amount of sense and ends up being one of those abstract sequences. And it's, it's really beautifully done. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to choreograph it though, because you know, you could do a lot of things with animation that you can't do in, in real life. And it, it's such an intricate scene. <laughs> and, and it you, was wild. Well, yeah, and you know that everybody sitting in the audience has seen the movie yeah. 10 times, right? Cause everybody loves this movie. <laughs> Uh, and and so there there must have been an enormous amount of pressure to uh, to to make it look as much like the cartoon as possible, or to do something completely different. Both of which are are difficult. Yeah, and I think we went with not looking like the cartoon, but making it as much of a showstopper as possible. I sure. remember our, our uh, Becky, our choreographer, uh, had us. She made us watch these old um, clips of old movies with uh, dancing in them, where you know the gals are wearing all the peacock feathers and everything. And she said, "This is what we are going for uh, with this number." <laughs> and yeah, it was intimidating. It was. I think we we had it that each um, different item, like the napkins, the forks, the knives everything was a different style of dance. So the oh, napkins were can-can girls and their skirts were the napkins themselves, you know? Uh, and yeah, yeah, it was, it was wild. It was, <laughs> you know, the forks and knives have these long forks and knives extending from their heads up the top and trying to do like jumps and spins in the air without clashing those things together. was really challenging. <laughs> I, bet. I just, I cannot imagine. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I'm sure it was one of those, um, wow, how do they do that moments for the audience and then a lot of uh, fun for you guys on the inside, um, having seen all the work that goes into it. So It doesn't just happen. Think, yeah. I think your observation on the on the song or on the animation sequence, Michael, is really good. I hadn't thought about the 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 way that it it connects with the, with some of the past um, music numbers that we've seen. But but um, yeah, it really it does get quite abstract there, and, and it's kind of like okay, how many how many servants were transformed in this in this castle? <laughs> yeah, I read I read an interview where the it was it was some animator, and he said, yeah, uh, we decided that. Uh, the, it didn't make a lot of sense, but we were just going to go with it because it looked good, which I think, and it was, does. I think was the right move. Yeah, it absolutely was. That's uh, that's what I was alluding to at the beginning. If you want to like really, yeah. um, you know, start nitpicking this thing, you you can find little plot holes like that. But then I, but you're totally missing the point if you do. You know, like if if you're watching that song and you're thinking about uh, how many how many servants got turned into forks, you're really you're considering the wrong question. I yeah. Think. <laughs> Although, uh, let's just let's just thank God that none of us are the servant who got turned into the fork. Can you imagine having to be shoved into the beast's mouth every night? Oh, fortunately, he doesn't. Use That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing that really makes that song great is Codsworth like trying to dampen it for almost the entire song <laughs> until even he's finally swept up in it but like for the whole like yeah. like uh beginning of it he's like we have to so be quiet you know she's not supposed to be eating <laughs> yep in our production he uh you know lumiere is like shooting confetti everywhere and cogsworth is chasing after him with a broom and dustpan trying to catch up with all of this mess and this chaos that's so funny <laughs> Oh, and they're a, they're a great comedy pair in general because they're they they're they're opposites, and um, you know they Lumiere is a lot of fun, but you 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 sense that if you were there with him in real life, you'd want to hit him, and uh, Cogsworth is the responsible one, but you'd probably also want to hit him sometimes too. So I the the that that particular yep. duo and the performances by Jerry Orbach and uh, David Ogden Steers are, are really uh, really fabulous. Lumiere, the one the one thing in this movie that feels kind of French. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most people in the movie have a British accent. So. Yeah, they've almost got a good cut. <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah they do. Yeah, and I was trying to think if we've seen that particular dynamic before in uh, in a in a Disney movie because I mean you you've certainly had like opposed pairs working together. But I, I think that particular dynamic, which I associate with like Ben Stiller movies more than more than classic Disney films. Sebastian's got a bit of Cogsworth in him, I would say. But he's not really balanced out. By, he's not really balanced out by a Lumiere on the other side, right? Uh, not so much. Um, you've got Scuttle and Flounder that are kind of silly, but not they've not got quite the duo interaction that those two do. It's almost like it's um, it, it's almost like a uh, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a little, maybe a little bit of like Baloo and Bagheera. Yes. There you go. That's that. That's it. 
Although I'm, but I agree with you that this is this is innovating it and taking it to a new level. But I, I think as as far as what we've seen in Disney movies, that's that's probably the closest, at least that I can think of off the top or of my head. Maybe a little rabbit and pigger going on as well. Maybe mm-hmm. yep, they're okay. not really. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, Rabbit and Tigger are real nemeses. <laughs> More than a duo. <laughs> More than a friendly duo. Although I don't know, Cogsworth and Lumiere, as soon as they're uh, as soon as they're made human again, they're happy for about forty five seconds and then they start fighting. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Well, I'm a big fan of the uh, Gaston songs actually. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, I I don't know. I think I think they're they're very um, what just clever lyrically and uh, just um, I don't know. They're they're just fun fun songs. Mm-hmm. I'm especially good at expectorating, as I think perhaps one of my favorite lines. And we're all about the same age. Is that how you guys learned what expectorating meant? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's another scene. Uh, in the Broadway version, Gaston and LeFou and the master of the asylum, Monsieur Dark, uh, have a, a song that's not in the animated one, unless it was cut, called uh, The Maison de Lunes, which is like House of Lunatics. And it's just a really delightful song where the three of them sing about their plan to lock Maurice up in the lunatic asylum. And it's the same sort of thing. The lyrics are just so clever and and delightful. So. I do love the line in the Gaston reprise: uh, "Plans, no one plans to persecute harmless crackpots like Gaston." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the the Gaston sequence is another one that the animators must have had just a ton of fun. Uh, coming up with because there's so much going on visually and it um, it matches both the music and the lyrics and it's really a fabulously put together. Many of you um, all been to Disney Worlds with the Gaston's Tavern in it with all of the music and everything. I have not been to Gaston's Tavern though I know it exists and <laughs> doesn't Gaston stand out in the front like arm wrestling children? Yep, he sure does. <laughs> and just being generally mean to people. It's really funny. <laughs> you, you've been there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really it's really delightful. It really captures the magic of it. And sure enough, it is completely decorated with antler. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys make of him as a villain? I think the only moment he's really terrifying is... Um, when he's got Belle cornered in her, um, you know, her dad's not there and, and, uh, you know, he's, he's really pressed up against her and being like, you just have to marry me, you know? Um, like, uh, he's, as, as he's coming towards her, he knocks a chair over. Like you really see, uh, the menacing sort of like, um, I'm going to get what I want here out of him. But then, uh, beyond that, like he's kind of, a just a, a lovable buffoon, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, until he's not, right? I mean, he he's interesting because he's not like Ursula. And he's not like, um, I can't even remember now, the George C. Scott character in The Rescuers Down Under. 
I can't remember what his name is, but he he he's not threatening the whole time. He's a he's a big joke and he's a big joke and he's a big joke and then all of a sudden he's a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> and Gaston kind of does that too when he uh, whips up the villagers into the mob frenzy and throws Belle and her father into you know locks them up in the carriage and then sends this angry mob to the beast's castle and. I think he's quite frightening when, when he's up on that uh, balcony fighting the beast and the beast just about, you know, he's he's one, he thinks he's one, and then Gaston comes up and stabs him from behind. And I think he's quite frightening in that moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, he's definitely wrong in that moment. I just, I feel like there's a bit that, like, he's... Um, I mean, you've seen the. We've all understood who the beast is at that point, but Gaston hasn't, and so there's a little. I'm not excusing him. <laughs> I'm not right. excusing the villain's behavior, but I feel like he's in that moment less villainous. You know, like he's just the same full of himself hunter guy that he's been the whole time. You know, it's when he gets really, I don't know. Like, I mean, he's obviously very malicious when he is deciding to to lock up Maurice, but even there, I think there's. There's a bit of him that that believes that this plan is going to work. Like Bell is going to just say, "Yeah, I'll marry you," and then Maurice doesn't actually have to go to the asylum. You know, like I mm-hmm. I don't know. Like there's a little bit of like um, I I don't know. Like I I don't want to be a an apologist for Gaston, but. <laughs> Yeah, Josh coming out hardcore in favor of Gaston. I feel like he's more a buffoon than a villain in a lot of ways, you know? And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something to be said about that, but... Yeah, I think Josh had had something when he said that, like, his creepiest moment is when he's got Belle pushed up against the wall in her house, and it's... uh, Mm -hmm. I think I I see it a little differently, too, having played the part, because um, we, uh, Belle and Gaston have a duet called Me, where Gaston is singing about all his plans for Belle, and it's uh, very misogynistic, and it's very physical. Um, You know, he's literally, like, dragging me around the stage and throwing me over his shoulder and just doing whatever he pleases. And so, you know, and, you know, yanking her book out of her hands and stomping on it and all of this stuff, and... He's, he's just so gross in the, in the Broadway version, at least. Uh, uh-huh. That that almost his villainy is almost more misogyny than anything else, I guess. <laughs> well, if, well, and if if Bell weren't so much smarter than him, if if she if we didn't feel instinctively that she could handle herself with him, mm-hmm. that that scene would be very upsetting. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I think that's part of it. Like, he's obviously a bully. Like, he is, like, 100% a bully. But it feels like the movie was kind of written by people who had been bullied by guys like that. And, like, this was their kind of coming back at him, you know? Which, I mean, that that sentiment, like, came up in one of the the features as well. So I don't want to be plagiarizing it. But, like, you kind of get this feeling like, yeah, he's a bully, but, like, it's, like, we're on the... Like it's the we've gotten the better of the bully type idea, you know, and that's where I where I mean where he comes across more as a buffoon to me than a mm-hmm. than a real real great villain. Well, and even during yeah. the climactic fight between him and the beast, as soon as there's any real danger, he uh, yeah. he begs for mercy. Right. <laughs> 
so he can he can shoot a he can shoot a goose in the middle of town, but he can't actually fight the beast. Yeah. Although I remember as a kid always thinking that he lasts pretty long against the beast. <laughs> you know, like they draw the fight out pretty good. Like I, I don't know. I I feel like the beast is could could easily have handled Gaston much faster than he did. <laughs> Did you all see the live-action remake with Emma Watson? I did not. Neither did I, no. Okay. I was just curious because their portrayal of Gaston in the new one is is quite different. He's not so much a buffoon. He's a lot more calculating, and I was just interested by that choice. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah, he's a lot more... I don't know if we'd go so far as to say smart, but something close to that. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think they did that to make him more threatening? I think they probably did, um, because they probably wanted us to feel, yeah. Yeah, I think they probably, that would be my guess. And yeah. it was effective. Yeah. And I think some of that is probably the difference between having live actors and having a cartoon. You know, mm-hmm. like, he's a cartoon villain. And so, like, <laughs> I mean, you're meant, in some ways, like, I mean, Michael and I have talked about this before on the show. Like, all the villains have their moments of humor or levity or whatever, um, for the most part, you know, with a, with a few rare exceptions. Like, it's notable when they don't. And so, and I think that works in a, in a cartoon. Um the animation is just bringing out, um, I don't know, the the extremes of character, I guess. I think the villain that comes to mind that doesn't have a moment of levity would be uh, Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. That is true. <laughs> he is almost not a cartoon, although I haven't seen that movie in 10 years. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how I feel about it now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, McLeach is the guy, the George C. Scott character from Rescuers, and he, he's not terribly funny either. Oh, yeah. Right. But he does like, have that great moment with the eggs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The, the egg sequence. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm interested in the, the sequence that we, we've, we've mentioned it, where he, where he is kind of rallying the crowd to go kill the beast. And in some ways, that's the scariest thing he does. That b- because yeah. this town full of French peasants worships him, he can pretty much get them to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, even if it's, you know, putting their own lives in danger or uh, killing an innocent person slash animal. Like, there, there's something really, really dark about the scene where he's um, he's drumming up the mob against the beast. Right. And it, I think it's especially dark because he does it by means of playing on all of their fears, right? Mm-hmm. He, you know... He shows them the picture in the mirror of the beast. And then he starts, he literally walks up to the mothers and starts saying, he'll come after your children in the night. For which he has no evidence whatsoever. Right. You know, he's going to murder your wives and children. And, you know, he starts preying on all of their fears in order to to frighten them against, in, into a mob and make them, yeah, make them attack. <laughs> I think this too goes back to that theme in the movie, though, of like really seeing things, and um, because there's there's so much in this movie. I mean, it's it's obviously like it's right there in the title, like Beauty and the Beast, but you have to see the beauty within the beast, right? But like, so 
there's there's a duh element to this theme, but I think they're it, they've really done a nice job of weaving it through the entire movie because yeah, you do see all these same peasants uh, or all these provincial towns people uh, in like they they draw them over and over. So you see them in that first opening song with Belle, but they don't really see, they don't really get who Belle is. Like they see her, but they don't see her. And then um, you see, and you know, they don't really see her because they all show up for Gaston's wedding, like uh, where he hasn't asked her uh, to marry him yet. Like she's actually going to say yes, you know, like, um, and then, and then, yeah, you do see them again, like riled up into this mob. And so you, I don't know. There's this this idea there where they're not really seeing Belle, and that's why she feels out of place there. And they're not really seeing the Beast either. They're just seeing the the outside. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's. I, I I just think this movie is very beautifully done in that way, where they they keep drawing at these same threads. And they could have easily done it in a different way, where they didn't. You know, like the the background characters are so generic that you don't see them these three times. But they actually, you know, you see the baker there all three times or whoever, you know, um, and you start to get a feeling like, well, wait, you don't really see anything here, do you? Yeah. And then they do it again at the end with that beautiful. I mean, there's that reverse seeing moment, right, when the beast is transformed back into the prince and he says, Belle, look into my eyes can't you see it's me? And she has to look at him really hard and look into his eyes before she recognizes, oh, it's still you. This is you. Mm-hmm. I, you know, with that transformation scene at the end, I wonder about the, uh, the villager who got eaten by that trunk. <laughs> <laughs> when the trunk transforms back into a person, is that villager going to be like in his stomach or... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> but to return to the mob song, because I'm I'm, fasc- I'm, fasc- I'm fascinated by this scene. Um, for, first of all, did you did you see that he quotes Lady Macbeth? Um, he says, "Screw your courage to the sticking place." Gaston does. It's in the song. Oh, I didn't know that was from Macbeth. That's yeah, it's it's Lady Macbeth trying to get Macbeth to kill King Duncan. Oh, that's fascinating. That's that's a great reference. <laughs> so it's like he it's like he knows he's in the wrong, or at least you know we're we're, so, we're supposed to know that. But I'm also interested. I can't help but see that. Maybe it's just because Christian Humanist Podcast did an episode on Marie Antoinette last month. But I I can't help but see that whole scene as a kind of critique of the French Revolution. A critique of this kind of populist uprising against aristocrats. Yep. Uh, I've, I, f- I found that very interesting and very chilling and, and you know, uh, not entirely inappropriate to our own cultural moment of populist uprising. There's a great, uh, a great line in, I, I don't know if it's in the animated version of the mob song or just in the Broadway version, but it says something about as the mob is chanting, they sing, um, we're 50 Frenchmen strong and 50 Frenchmen can't be wrong. Yeah. That's in the, uh, that's in the movie. That's the animated one too. Okay. I think I, I only heard it for the first time when we were doing the show and thought that's a delightful line. 
there's a lot of delightful lines weaving through woven throughout these songs. Like it's it's, <laughs> I mean uh, Howard Ashman. You know, I, I know this is his final movie, and so sometimes we we like to valorize people in their final works when we know that they were doing things as they died. But I really think um, he you know he deserves the praise that he gets. There is a lot of really great uh, lyrics in this in this whole thing. What's your favorite song in the movie, Josh? Um, I don't know. I like I said, I, I I do like those Gaston songs, and um, I actually I do like the opener, like the the bell song. Um, I, I think it's probably one of those. How do you guys feel about the relative merits of the song Bell versus Part of Your World from Little Mermaid? Because huh. in terms of Disney, I want songs. It's got to be between those two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really true. I just I, can't wait to be the uh, be king. Just doesn't just doesn't cut it against those two. <laughs> That's funny because Ariel was my other favorite princess growing up as a as a redhead at the time, of course, and uh, so I loved that song. I still love it. Actually, I'm going to be singing it for a showcase. Um, I think it's hard. It's hard to compare them to some extent because. You know, part of your world is Ariel alone, right, in her um, cave of wonders, as it were, singing up to the sky. Whereas Belle, I guess she's alone in her own way in the midst of this busy, bustling town. Um, But she's still kind kind of alone as well. But she's got, you know, all of that interaction, the human interaction going on throughout the song that lends the comedy to it as well, right? Yeah, that's true. It's it's kind of an I want song, and it's kind of just a scene setting song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it blends them both very well. Like it, it's definitely an I want song because I mean, <laughs> she says very clearly, you know, I, I, I want, want much more. Than <laughs> yes, life. yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubt that it's an I want song. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there the the scene setting is is the part of it the that I really like and admire. So I, if if I had to make a choice for the better I want song, it would probably be Ariel's. But um, just as the scene the scene setting song. Um, I think I, this is, you know, this is what they did with Little Mermaid and with, with the opening number there. They did the scene setting with the the sisters singing, but this is, you know, cranking that to eleven, and it's just, uh, I, I think it's a much better scene setting song than than what Little Mermaid did. This is another one of those movies like Peter Pan, where I just can't fathom why the character would want more than they already have. Like <laughs> living in that living in that tiny French town sounds awesome to me. <laughs> Baguettes every day, yeah. That's right, right. I, I told I told Victoria that I could run that I could run that bookshop and it'd be perfect. <laughs> Although yeah. everybody's so confused by the fact that she reads, how so on true. earth does he operate a bookshop? You know what I mean? Like she seems to be his only client, <laughs> and he gives her books for free. <laughs> <laughs> not a very was, good businessman I, I was also confused because uh she says do you have any new books and he says no and she says well i'll take this one then and he says you've already read that one yeah <laughs> you just told her there were no new books <laughs> well he says you've read it twice so as That's opposed true. to the other ones that she's maybe read once um, <laughs> she's read it twice. <laughs> it's her favorite I find it delightful that Gaston says, how can you read a book with no pictures in it? But when she's sitting with the sheep, that she shows the sheep the picture of the prince. So yeah, we, cl- we clearly, clearly see there the are pictures. some pictures. <laughs> he just assumes there are no pictures. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was also a really fun number uh, to choreograph uh, because um, so for that one, for the opening of the show, we made the decision to have um, I actually entered from the audience. So, you know, because Belle enters from her house and goes into the village. So uh, I started off the show behind the audience in this kind of dark passageway that the audience normally enters through. And it was a really cool experience because I got to sit there and watch the whole scene with the hag and the rose and the prince and the beast and all of that. And then the music changes to that beautiful little tune with the cocks crowing and all of that. And the light changes to that warm kind of honey colored uh, early morning light. And we had me walk through the audience to sing the little town bit. And then as soon as I get up to the stage, the whole stage comes alive with all of the characters and the light and everything. So yeah, it was just, it's a really cool, it's almost like a perfect opening number, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's such a nice contrast as you, as you were just saying from, um, from the cold open of the movie, the, the story of the beast and, and the, uh, the mm-hmm. enchantress. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a perfect opening. I'm always shocked, like always shocked when they do the cold open with the Beast and the Enchantress. I'm like, oh, yeah, this part's in here, too. Like, I always <laughs> picture the movie starting with, like, the bonjour, bonjour. Like, that's just where I think the movie should start, you know? <laughs> I just erase all that other part from my mind. But, you know, that opening song makes the town look so quaint and lovely. And then these are the same people, as you were saying, who who turn immediately and are ready to kill the beast. So like, I, I think that's actually very effective. Right. Um, and maybe, maybe you understand why she doesn't like the provincial life so much. Yeah. yeah. Maybe these people are a little bit superficial in their, in their niceness. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we've talked on the show before about the like enchantment and disenchantment and, so provincial France is enchanting to us because we don't live there, you know. But like for these people, the enchantment is the you know the fairy stories that Belle is reading that they they seem to have no interest in, or at least Gaston has no interest in. We don't really know the rest of the villages, um, you know, thoughts on it. But then, uh, you know, in some ways, like yeah, you could see that final mob song as a rise against an aristic, uh, what. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i stumbled over my words there but like you could also see it as you know um you know they're they're attack they're attacking an enchanted castle you know like they're they want to stay disenchanted in a way all i can think of is hemingway's line about the town he grew up in wide lawns and narrow minds <laughs> hmm. i'm always really fascinated by the way that um the choices that Disney makes when they adapt fairy tales into into films. Because um, I used to teach high school and junior high literature. And um, so we did a segment on fairy tales where we just read through a bunch of the original, you know, Brothers Grimm and Anderson stories. And, you know, Little Mermaid, there's some huge changes that Disney made to the story. I mean, in, in the original fairy tale, she dies at the end. <laughs> uh but Beauty and the Beast, you know, uh, it's not a Grimm's fairy tale. I think the original was written by Madame, uh, her name was, I think, Madame de Villeneuve, and uh, she is a French author. 
And in her version of the story, so the original, the beast was a, uh, he used to be a good prince and he was put under a curse by an evil fairy. Uh, and the only way to break the curse is if a girl can see his real goodness and love him despite his ugly exterior. But in Disney, they change it to a good fairy who's punishing him for his, his wicked, his uh, wicked heart. So I'm, I'm just always really fascinated by why Disney makes the changes they do in terms of the story arc. Why do you think they made that one? Well, I mean, if you read the original story, it's, it's really lovely to read. It's very pretty, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have much of a plot arc, I guess I would say. Um, she kind of shows up to the castle She learns that she's not going to be devoured, which is what she originally thought was going to happen. She thought the beast wanted to eat her. (laughs) And so she discovers that's not going to happen. And and then just kind of spends time with him and grows to like him. But there's not much of an arc to it. I think this this gave the beast... The beast in the original story is pretty two-dimensional. Like, he doesn't change. He's, He's nice. He was cursed. He's still nice. He gets uncursed. But in the Disney version now, they gave the Beast a lot more of a character arc. And I guess it gives Belle a lot more obstacles to overcome as well. So, yeah. And there's no Gaston in the original version either. Yeah, this is one of the few Disney movies that's actually darker than the source material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unusual. But I think I really like the changes they made. Um, I mean, I, I read the book recently, and I think actually this is one of the few instances where I actually prefer Disney's version considerably to the source material. I don't think that's the case for me with all of the other fairy tales. So Sometimes Disney kind of bowdlerizes the fairy tales, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation of that word, but, uh, you know, takes these stories that were originally very dark morality morality plays, you know, with lessons for children about don't disobey your father or this will happen or don't go into the woods or this will happen. And, you know, like with Little Mermaid, it took a story where, you know, she was warned about what was going to happen and she chose to disregard the warnings and she ended up suffering a consequence. Whereas in the Disney version, she disobeys the warnings and everybody realizes she was right all along. And I don't I don't know why Disney would Disney does that sometimes, but um, it's intriguing to me. But this is one of the stories in which I feel like Disney really didn't, like you just said, Disney. It's actually darker than the original, and yeah, maybe has more moral uh, ambiguities or things to discuss than the original one did. Yeah, it's it's about moral transformation, right? It's 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 about. A, a person who was a bad person becoming a good person. Right. Yeah. I think we should talk through this transformation a little bit, like uh, just the moments that stand out to you, um, to each of you in the, in the film uh, where you, where you're seeing his transformation take place. And then, um, and then obviously we should, we should talk about that final transformation scene. Cause I think it's, it's a pretty remarkable bit of, of filmmaking and animation. So what are, what are some of the, the moments that you guys enjoy in the, the beast's narrative arc? 
Well, b- before we talk about the transformations, I want to I want to talk just a little bit about beastliness it- itself. I-, I have here written in my notes uh, Aristotle's God or Beast, which I think I I must have meant. Ar- Aristotle says in the Politics that a person who lives outside the polis, outside of the city, is either a god who has no need of other human beings or a beast who can make no use of them. And and so yeah. it, it makes it makes sense that you have this provincial life and on the outside of it you have this guy who lived on the outside of it even before he was turned into a beast and became a beast because he was unable to live with other people, because he was unable to do the things that human beings are supposed to do for each other. So he becomes a beast because it reflects who he already was on the inside. And what happens over the course of the movie is that he learns to live in the polis in Aristotelian terms. He becomes a human being. And, uh, and I, I think that's one of the things that makes it so moving. You really, you really get the sense that it's not that this is who he was all along. It's this is who he is now that he couldn't have been before there was someone there to love him and to teach him how to love. It's really interesting. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the Flannery O'Connor story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, um, where at the end there's this grandmother character. Who, it's a pretty dark story, but uh, <laughs> they encounter this killer, and at the end he um, there's there's this line where somebody says, she would have been a good woman if there had been somebody there to kill her every day of her life. Uh-huh. <laughs> like under pressure this is who she really was and um yeah that's really interesting and that's a contrast again to the original fairy tale in which he was a good person but she put this this vengeful fairy put a random curse on him Mm -hmm. Um, it makes it much more about reflecting he actually was with all that in mind i think um a, a really important scene is when um when Belle escapes and uh, the wolves attack her and the beast goes out and, and saves her from the wolves, but he kind of succumbs to the wounds the wolves give him. And there's a moment, right? There's a moment when Belle is just going to get on her horse and go home and just leave him there to die. And she looks at him and she realizes she can't do that. And, and her recognition of her responsibility to him at that moment is what makes her not a beast. And and the fact that he went out to save her from the wolves shows that he's not entirely a beast either. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent um, excellent observation, and yeah, I really like how you said that. They're like, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that at all. Like this is this is what differentiates them as 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 human and beast. Um, yeah, that's really amazing because he's at his most beastly. In a way, he's at his most beastly. Like he's just taken out a pack of wolves, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's because, as you said, like it's because he's actually becoming not a beast at that moment. Like it's 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 his first step towards um, learning to learning to care through for others through through sacrificing himself. Well, and ethically speaking, he's he's actually at his most beastly right before that, right? Because the reason she runs away is because he explodes at her because he finds her in the West Wing. And so, like this is this is this is a big moment for him because it's it's a moment where he realizes maybe that he can be something other than what he is. 
But I, I just love that pause yeah. that she gives where she almost leaves. Yeah. She, she almost just does what's best yeah. for herself and then doesn't. Yeah. And as an actress, that scene was really fun. Um, it, it was challenging, but really fun. My director, he kept making me make that pause longer uh-huh. because <laughs> I, you know, my, I, I have this friend, Brandon, who's playing the beast and he's laying there wounded on the ground. And my instinct was to run to him. And my director said, nope, you got to hold that, hold that pause. She really has to think about it and take a moment to decide and keep looking back at the, at the you know, town that she could go safely to and be done. And that, yeah, that ethical moment of deciding was really fun to portray and then to make that, that decision to kind of hesitantly run towards him and pick him up. <laughs> right, right. Because cause it's I what you're supposed to do. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The right thing to do. I didn't have the benefit of a horse, so I had to just drag him out <laughs> myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess it would be hard to get the horse on stage. <laughs> Yeah, it sure would. <laughs> I think one of my favorite transformation moments is that it's just a silly moment, but it's it's during that song, something something there, when they're eating at the dinner table and the beast starts slobbering up his food, you know, as he is wont to do. <laughs> and then uh, he catches Belle looking at him with one eyebrow raised and he just stops and takes a look at his spoon kind of nervously and, you know, reaches out towards it and finally picks it up and tries to eat it. But then, you know, she then meets him halfway by picking up her bowl and very daintily sipping from her bowl instead. Because so, he can't really use the spoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a lovely moment. And it does show, I think, that there's a... I mean, there's less of a transformation maybe for Belle than the Beast, but I, I think there there is a bit of both of them learning to accept each other, and, and that meeting him halfway is, is an important gesture on her part. And and I think it's an important gesture in helping her to, I mean, help, yeah, her helping him to transform, you know, to see that he is, he is worthy of being loved. It's also good hospitality to do that there's a there's a story that gets attributed to a lot of people so i don't know if it's true or who actually did it but um a a person from a lower class background goes to a really fancy dinner dinner party and there's a um a finger bowl next to the plate uh so you know you wash your fingers off in it and this person picks it up and drinks the water out of it and without missing a beat the hostess of the party picks up her finger bowl and drinks the water out of it because, I mean, you know, part of the point is of manners is you, your job is not to make people feel bad that they don't have a good, good enough manners. Manners are about making other people feel comfortable. So I, I, I like that moment, too, Josh, that where, where Bell is um, showing him that he's not as monstrous as he thinks he is. Another moment is the snowball moment. Um, sure. That stands out to me. I mean, I feel like Bell's taking a huge risk nailing him in the face with a snowball. Like, this is a guy with a pretty bad temper. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really a lot of fun to get hit blindsided by a snowball. Um, <laughs> and the fact that he doesn't lash out at her, but, you know, you know, it, it turns into a game. 
I think it's it's a pretty big moment for the beast and and a pretty big moment for Belle. I think she's taking a big risk. It's almost like she went behind that tree and she's thinking, okay, is this real or not? I got to test it out. <laughs> I got to find out, you know, like, <laughs> if this is real. Uh, you get the very very typical Disney moment where he makes friends with all the animals. All the all the birds are landing on him, but it gets played for laughs and kind of taken to its logical extreme. Very Snow White. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, and and that scene happens when she sings Prince Charming. He's no Prince Charming, so I think the reference to Snow White's got to be on purpose. Well, should we talk about the actual uh, the transformation moment? Go for it. Well, I don't, I don't know how much I have to say. <laughs> I was, I was going to lean on you here. No, this is uh, a. <laughs> um, this is I thought I thought this was really interesting that it's it's animated by um, the the same uh, the Kane guy. What's his name? What's his first name? Michael, do you remember? Um, he did the Eagle. Glenn Keane, the son of the Family Circus's Bill Keane, as we talked about last time. That's right. So. Um, in the, I couldn't believe what I was seeing when I watched this in the special feature. But he was talking about how he really felt like this is a spiritually transformation moment where he's really putting on to like he's really trying to visualize what's happened with him spiritually. And he says he wrote on his desk uh, that verse in the Bible that says, um, "Whoever is." Uh, in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And he had that written on his desk while he animated this scene, um, which I, I thought was remarkable. Um, and I th- I do think it even prior to knowing that, I did think like this, this is a really amazing uh, sort of scene because uh, you get the music, of course, and you get the, you know, the, the rain that's turning into whatever those are, the, you know, the glowing, shimmering um, magic, <laughs> magic lightning that's coming down, you know. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's really cool the way that he's just like he's kind of swept up in this whirlwind and then uh, comes out of it as a person. Uh, it's just it's really I think it's just a, a really powerful scene and a really just breathtaking piece of animation. It's it's grace, right? I mean, that's what's that's what's happening. Yeah, and it's a beautiful display of grace, you know, um, because she's uh, she's she's expressed his love to love for him, and uh, that's what you know that was what was needed. Right, it's the redeeming love, and yeah, I just ah oh, man, I I watched the film again this afternoon with my daughter Emma, who's five, and uh, that scene just gives me. I've, I've seen the movie hundreds of times, and that scene gives me chills every single time I watch it. And I think that's probably what it is, that, that it has that such a Christian, redemptive, uh, almost resurrection kind of quality to it. Um, you know, it's a transformation scene. I, I was thinking about it earlier, and I, I was writing down something about the transformation, and I almost accidentally used the word transfiguration instead. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but then I thought about it and like I mean there is something about that it has this very biblical quality to it where I mean there's light radiating out of his fingertips and his toes and it's just 
it's so beautiful and glorious. And um, when we did that scene on stage, uh, well, it was very difficult and complicated, but uh, it did end similarly with, you know, the prince standing there up on this kind of balcony thing and um, spinning around and looking at his hands and his feet. And there was smoke and fog and flickering lights. And I'm standing there, you know, as an actress playing Belle, I'm standing there watching this happen. And it was funny because it felt, even as I was doing the show, it felt very much like watching the movie where I got the same kind of chills and goosebumps. And some, somehow that scene was so powerful. That I found myself standing there on stage watching it happen. And it wasn't until the prince would look up and look directly at me and start singing that I had was like, oh, yeah. I'm in this. <laughs> I have to actually keep doing, but I would get so swept up in watching it and listening to that glorious music that I almost forgot every time. I almost forgot that I was in it um, because it was just, yeah, it's so glorious. And yeah, I love, I love it. I think it's one of the best done ending scenes that Disney has maybe, maybe ever done. Yeah. I certainly did not remember it being as elaborate as it was um, with, mm. with, with those bolts of grace coming down from the sky. And it really, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful sequence. And um, for everything bad I've ever said about the family circus, I do, I do respect Glenn Keane quite a bit as an animator because uh, between this and rescuers down mm. under, he's done some really amazing animation work. It did remind me a little of, um, the transformation at the end of the little mermaid, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where Triton sends golden light, you know, the bolt of gold through the water to her and it lights and she's all lit up in this beautiful gold and she stands up and it has a, it has a similar feel to it to me. But I think the one in beauty and the beast is even more powerful because it's so unexpected, right? I mean, you, they lead us to believe it's too late. We watch the last petal fall and and we think for a moment maybe it's too late and just as we think it's too late just as she's weeping and holding his dead body in her arms just as everybody thinks it's too late then the music shifts then the lights begin and it has a very yeah it has a very resurrection quality to it i think well and and the her holding his body is the pieta right it's mary holding christ's body off of the cross mhm I, it, I, I didn't think about Glenn Keane being a Christian, and I didn't think about him animating that sequence. But, I mean, once you know that, it's like, oh, wow, there's all sorts of resurrection imagery in this. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really the death doesn't have the final say here. You know, death is not the last word. Love is the last word. Because he dies, and you, like you were saying, Kate, that feels like it should be the last word. The, the flower dies, and that feels like it should be the last word. And then it's... I, I love you, and that's the last word on 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 uh, on who the beast gets to be. Yeah, it's it's not that he has made himself not a beast, although in some ways he does that, right? It's that her loving him proves that he's not a beast. Well, we should talk about some of the other. Uh, pieces of animation in in the movie because there's there's an awful lot of uh of good animation and then one scene that was really good in 1991 that hasn't aged terribly well which is the big 
CGI spin around the ballroom during the the title song. I remember seeing that in 1991 and being blown away, and now looking at it, it looks kind of chintzy, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're not wrong. I do feel like they've made major leaps since... um... You know, since even the last movie, uh, uh-huh. Rescuers Down Under, and I do feel like a lot of that is in the um, in the in 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 our Rescuers Down Under episode. I talked about how it seemed like a lot of their animation was was show offy mm-hmm. to the point of of pushing you away. And mm-hmm. here, I feel like they they've they've got a handle on it, you know. Yeah. And so, even though it's chintzy, it's at least more. Um, I don't know, like they're 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 drawing you in more with it somehow, you know. Like that big camera sweep is a is a is an inward motion sweep, you know. You're starting mm-hmm. high and coming down into them. Whereas I feel like in the 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 rescuers down under, it was always the opposite. It was always pushing you back out into some sort of you know uh, god view of of everything. And so um, I'm glad that they at least got a handle on that. But um, yeah, overall, I love the look of this movie. I think it's it's really, really beautifully animated. Um, but I think you see it more in the the moments that we were talking about earlier. The you know the the pause and that that Belle has where she's making a decision. Well, the animator's doing all the work there in her right. face, and it's such a small you know it's the it's the small animation um, that makes this movie powerful not the big moves that that were mind blowing in 1991 one one little detail that i think is really effective is when we're first meeting the beast his first three or four scenes in the castle there's a lot of really quick camera motions with him so it he the camera moves like an animal um, hunting uh, when when he's on screen, and that that goes away as he develops as a character, and we see that he's not an animal essentially. So I I, I thought that was subtle, um, but really really well done. Yeah, when he finds out she's not coming to dinner, and they're all rushing, like he's rushing up to her room. Um, there's a there's this a great moment there where like they're all like clamoring after him and and not wanting him to go, but he's he's taking the steps and then he just uh, jumps off the railing of the steps up to the balcony. Um, it's really like really stunning, <laughs> you know, um, very much in in full animal beast mode at that moment. <laughs> Yeah. I loved the landscapes of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only a few of them really that I can think of, but I just, as I was rewatching it, I noticed the very opening shot of the entire, of the entire film was just like stunningly beautiful. You've got in that one opening shot, it's moving through the forest and you've got um, these, like this wall of roses to one side, there's a sparkling waterfall you're, there's a forest, there's deer moving through the woods, and then the castle in the background with its, you know, full-on gar- gothic architecture and the stained glass window. And, and then it ends with a very similar um, palace wall, you know, panning back away. And there's a rose garden up the palace wall and the new stained glass window of beast, or the prince and bell. And I think those were really stunning. The other, the other uh, shot that I absolutely loved, I loved it as a child, I still love it, is when um, 
you know, Belle, she sings I Want Adventure in the Great White somewhere. Mm-hmm. And she has been in town that whole time, but then she runs just out into that open field and it's covered in, you know, dandelions that are dead, dead and blowing off in the wind. And um, that camera angle, it's like, I think it's down in the field looking up at her and she's looking up into the clouds and it just, um, it evokes so well that whole idea of, uh, you know, what C.S. Lewis called sensucht, the, I think that word came from the German romantics, but uh, that idea of longing, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lewis, Lewis talks about it as um, an apology, it's his apologetic for Christianity, right? He, the idea of this longing for the far off country, the, the place that we can imagine but have never seen in this world. And for Lewis, you know, that is actually the longing for God. And I feel like Beauty and the Beast, yeah, Belle's longing for this far-off country, for the great wide somewhere, you know, Aslan's country, as it were. I think that comes across so beautifully in the animation, in that sequence especially. Yeah, that's that's super beautiful. I don't I don't want to detract from it, but <laughs> I'm going to probably. But the other the other landscape shot that I just love in this is when um, uh, Maurice is riding Philippe and they get lost in the in the forest and they're trying to figure out which way to go. And uh, there there's one shot where you get it from the point of view of the of Philippe <laughs> and he looks in the one path is just completely gloomy and the other path is all glowing and beautiful. And uh, yeah, the, those landscapes, <laughs> it just, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> there's another uh, beautiful shot and I can't remember exactly when it is now, but there, uh, it's, it's the fall, uh, the woods in the fall. And it's a gratuitous shot. It's it doesn't do anything except look good, and uh, that's kind of what makes it wonderful. <laughs> I also really like that opening mm-hmm. with all the flattened out um, animation based on the stained glass windows, and it, it really made me think of Sleeping Beauty, which had that kind of tapestry look. Yeah, which I, you know, was another Disney movie set in France. Right. I wondered if uh, the horse being named Philippe was a reference to Prince Philip, <laughs> who has a very, uh, you know, expressive horse himself. Yeah. And doesn't Philip mean lover of horses? That's right. Like the actual meaning of the word? Yeah, or I the think he does. Yeah. But you're right. The stained glass, even though I forget about it every time, and I want the movie to start with, you know, bonjour. Um, it's really, it is a, I, the the style of it is is really cool. It's it's very different than than most of what we've seen, I would say, you know. But the way that they don't just tell the story with it, I mean, they do tell the story with it, but like, um, there there are those little moments where the stained glass kind of changes before your eyes you know it's not like just a series of stained glass windows but Mm -hmm. it's like the the transformation is happening right there it's really cool i think we too have to talk about the way that the uh animators did such a great job of um taking uh like a, a candle stick and uh and a clock and a pot a teapot and turning them into um you know just uh, realistic characters. That's that's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. 
to the point where it's kind of a letdown when you see them in their human form. I've always felt that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it is kind of a sad ending in the sense. I mean, it obviously, um, from their perspective, it must be incredibly freeing to be human again. And and there's there's the in the Broadway there's that song, but. Uh, you know, from the enchantment sort of thing, like, well, now, now they're just a normal castle, you know, like the enchantment is gone. Um, so it is kind of a letdown. <laughs> Here's a detail I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before. Um, the, the castle itself is changed by the curse and by the breaking of the curse. Um, there, there's a series of statues that are of, you know, malicious animals that turn into angels, I think, once the once the curse is lifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the pirate ship in Peter Pan mm-hmm. that at the end where it comes up into the sky and the pixie dust goes over it and the same thing happens. It transforms into something beautiful. The whole castle, the colors change, like, from the creepy gothic colors to the pinks and warms. And yeah, it's almost, yeah, it has sort of a resurrection quality, too, in the in the idea of, like, you know, the whole earth being redeemed and creation itself being redeemed and the castle itself, the land itself is redeemed from the curse. It, it kind of ties into the Fisher King myth. You know, the, the Fisher King is wounded and his whole land suffers, and you have to bring him the. I think mm-hmm. I think that's the Holy Grail. He, if he gets the Holy Grail, the land will come back to life. But fairy tales are expressly Christian, right? I mean, that's that's a that's a Christian genre mm-hmm. of folktale. So it, it makes sense. It's it, even if even if people making it weren't Christians, and some of them were, and some of them weren't. I, I think it would be weird if we watched this and didn't see all these kind of. Um, echoes of of christian imagery and um narratives yeah it's a real fall and then redemption story you know because i mean it's it's the the prince who makes the bad decision yeah but but all of his you know all of his subjects are are affected by it so right (laughs) original sin yeah go ahead kate you were saying something and i think that's why i'll put Oh, I just I think that's why I balked at um, when people back back to the very beginning of our discussion when people oversimplify this into a Stockholm um, Stockholm syndrome story. I just think there's there's not only is that not necessarily accurate as a depiction of the relationship, but it's just like there's so much more going on in this story. To me, it's it's so much more of a deep yeah fall and redemption. Um, creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative. Um, So, yeah. Our culture, like, deeply doesn't believe in grace, though. So it makes makes sense that... It makes sense that you would look at this and not see the workings of grace, and instead you would see something horrible if you don't believe in grace, which I, I really don't think our culture does. Yeah, I think that's a good observation, Michael. Like the, um, you know, G.K. Chesterton talks about that in uh, his book Orthodoxy about like this. There's this this shattering of of Christianity, and so you get different um, principles that Christians would uphold, like 
um, you know, different virtues like justice or or something like that. But but they take on a different because they're shattered and and apart from from the whole of Christianity and from the Keeley that grace element. Um, they take on this this uh, I don't know this whole different <laughs> this whole different thing. You know, where they they become an idol. They become a right. um, yeah. They be something it's like the dark side of of all those sorts of things and and i i i agree i think we see, we see that very strongly in our culture right now we we definitely live in a kill the beast culture you know you, it's funny that you mentioned the fisher king uh and you know because the holy grail is so prominent in arthurian legend and one thing i enjoyed noticing in the play anyway i don't remember if this is in the film but in the play you know, the library sequence where she's reading um, books to him. And in the show, the book that I'm reading to the Beast is uh, the story of one of, it's the story of King Arthur. Um, And yeah, the stories of the Knights of the Round Table. And it's, I think it's interesting how that got woven in there as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Was that that's written in the script, Kate, or was that a decision your production made? No, it's uh, it's actually written in the script. Um, she's a uh, so she's in the library, and there's this gorgeous big book sitting on the table, and she picks it up and she says, "Oh, it's King Arthur. It's one of my favorites. I'd love to read it to you." And so she starts reading it to him, uh, and in the end, um. It's actually during the song Human Again. So the song Human Again starts as she's reading the story of King Arthur. Uh, They start dancing and singing Human Again. And then by the end of the song, she's finishing the story. She says, you know, and uh, the end of how, you know, Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and all these things happened. And um, they were never or he never saw Guinevere again or something to that effect. And then she closes the book and said, and the beast says, well, that's really sad. And she says, but isn't it a good story? And he's like, yeah, it is. It's a really good story. <laughs> hmm. Oh, and you know what else he's reading? She's reading now. I remember um, there's a little interruption in the song and she says, you know, and then the young king pulled the sword from the stone and it revealed to everyone that he was the true king. And the beast says, oh, that must mean he's the king. And so it's it's really interesting because it feels kind of like a throwaway. Oh, they're reading the story of King Arthur. But at the same time, the story of the sword and the stone is a story about um, people having to learn to see beyond appearance, right? That's because true, yeah. This, this kid Arthur, who is actually the true-born king of England, but they don't see it until he pulls the sword from the stone and the people realize this is who he actually is. Huh. Yeah, I don't think in the movie it specifies at all what she's reading to him. Mm-mm. I don't think that, so. That adds an extra layer. Yeah, and I think it's a cool layer to add because I've, I've often thought about, or not often, but I have thought about the fact that he's, you know, he's got this tremendous library, but he doesn't seem to have, like, learned anything from it you know um but then once bell arrives i mean maybe that's the first time that he's even seen his books also you know like the first time that he's actually spending any time in there and actually gleaning uh you know these the the things that we can out of out of literature 
Yeah. In the play, it says he never learned to read. So oh. she asks him, can't you read? And he says, no, I can't. They have a little back and forth. She says, you should read it first. He says, no, you read it. And she says, no, you read it. And then finally, he kind of yells, roars at her and shoves the book at her. And he says, okay, I can't. I can't read. I've never learned to read. Mm. And so she says, well, I'll teach you. <laughs> That's interesting. I, uh, I'm, I was just looking up literacy in 18th century France. And apparently only about 60% of men could read. Huh. And probably, you know a very low percentage of women. No wonder they think she's weird for reading. Most, most women in her town probably would have been illiterate. Exactly. And in the, in the live action remake, there's a scene where Emma Watson is um, teaching a little child at the well, how to read. It's a little girl and he's, she's teaching her how to read and Gaston comes around, I believe, and, and says, why are you bothering teaching a girl to read? That's such a waste of time. Girls don't need to know how to read. (laughs) Belle has been a uh, favorite of bookish women since 1991, <laughs> at least. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've talked this whole episode without ever talking about the title song. It feels like we should say something. It was a big uh, hit song. The um, I, I believe the adult contemporary version that plays over the credits was also a big hit. I can't remember who sings that. Peebo Bryson, I think. And Celine Dion. Oh, oh man. (laughs) That's such a bad version of that song. Why not just release the Angela Lansbury version? Yeah, I'm not sure why they decided to release a pop version of it, but I do do have a, like, this is the first, I guess, I was trying to find facts on this i i couldn't quite figure out when the last disney song to hit the pop charts was but it's been a while at least by the time that this one came out and uh but i think it was definitely the first one in like my remembered childhood like i remember mm-hmm. hearing this one on the radio and being like oh they play songs from disney movies on the radio too you know it um, seemed very normal at the time well it became normal like i think it it wasn't with this song because it became such a hit but then it it became normal because you know uh with aladdin um you get what's the what's the big song from aladdin um whole new world yeah whole new world also by also by peebo bryson yeah and also a huge you know pop hit and so it was on on the radio stations and stuff when i was a kid and one of course uh elton john did pop versions of the songs from the lion king yeah so yeah it, be, it became normal but this is this was the this was the first to to do it at least at least when we were kids i love that song there was i think about a year straight where my daughter emma uh, that had that had to be her lullaby i had to sing it every single night for i think about a year at least that's so, very sweet. I'm very familiar with it. But it is. It's a really beautiful, lovely... It's really simple. It's very simple compared to some of the other numbers. Um, you know, and it's got not quite a waltz format, but something simple because that's the dance that they do. Um, yeah, it's a really beautiful piece. I remember when I took piano lessons, I had to learn to play Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I can't remember how to play it. <laughs> um, 
I was going to mention that uh, Robert Lopez, who's like the the this you know this this current generation of Disney, he's the he's the one that does all the songs for their movies now um, for Frozen and you know uh, whatever. Um, but he pointed out in the in the behind the scenes features that um, in uh, oh sorry what was what was the song they were talking about your favorite song Michael uh, something there. Yeah, something there. It's very like kind of halting and like because you have their two parts, you know. It's like da 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 and then but in this one it kind of brings those two together to get the da 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 da. You know, like it, it brings both those um, together into one, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very different song than than something there. If anything, I liked this movie more than I did when I was growing up, and I liked it a lot then. Like yeah. this is this is just a a magnificent movie. What what uh, was it up against? Silence of the Lambs is that what won? Best yeah, picture that's what, that year. Yeah, that's what won Best Picture. <laughs> I think I, I would feel comfortable saying this is better than Silence of the Lambs. That movie scared me so badly I couldn't sleep for days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never seen I've never seen it, but like I just uh, I think it would be fun if somebody would go and like if they if they did the whole you know the same award ceremony thing, but they you know it was like it ten years later or twenty years later, and like <laughs> let's course correct like because I feel like there's so many examples of of movies that lost out, but that obviously had just like a a hugely more influential. Um, cultural impact or whatever, you know. I think I think awarding movies the year that they come out is is dumb. <laughs> oh man, the the other three nominees for best picture that year, Bugsy. Yeah, it's a Warren Warren Beatty movie with Annette Bening. Um, JFK, the Oliver Stone JFK, and the Prince of Tides. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Good year for film. <laughs> Silence of the Lambs is a good movie. It's just really scary. It's funny though that like those are the two movies that we remember: The Silence of the Lambs and Beauty and the Beast. How do you even compare them? Yeah. <laughs> Has an animated movie ever won Best Picture? You said this was the first nominee. None of them won since then, right? Yeah, this is the first one nominated, and I don't believe any have ever won it. Um, they, I think they, they they actually created their own category. Right. For best animated picture, um, so I don't, I don't remember this off the top of my head. I want to say Toy Story three was the last one that was nominated for best picture. I think that's true, but I don't know. I, I know a lot of people were very upset about the creation of that separate category because they felt like they did it in order to protect uh, the other movies from the animated features. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't put a lot of stack st- stock, obviously. <laughs> I obviously don't put a lot of stock in um, uh, the the award shows, but it, it's it's an it's an interesting trivia fact. If that's about it for me. Well, what else do we have to say about this movie? Anything? I think we've hit everything in my notes, Kate. Yeah, I think we've pretty well covered it. Yeah, I think so. Pretty wonderful. 
Yeah, if for some reason somebody listening to this hasn't seen Beauty and the Beast, they should go watch it. I, I can't imagine there's anybody who would who would listen to two hours of us talking about it without having seen the movie. But I would like to meet you, whoever you are, and, and somehow got through their life without seeing Beauty and the Beast, one of the most universally beloved movies of all time. But who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right well our press liaison is kristen philippic michael and i are on the old interwebs at before they were live if you want more of kate you can find her at the sioux center arts facebook page please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us on twitter i'm at the underscore alt and michael is at kel bummer we want to Encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. So for Michael Farmer and Kate, I'm Josh Altman Schofer, and I just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending the time with us, but promise or no promise, I can't stay here another minute.